The wind, one brilliant day, called to my soul with an odor of jasmine. And the wind said, in return for the odor of jasmine, I'd like the odor of your roses. But I said, I have no roses. All the flowers in my garden are dead. And the wind said, then I'll take the withered petals and the yellow leaves. And the wind left and I wept. And I said, what have I done with the garden that was entrusted to me? Thank you so much. This is an illustration of how what we call art, which I'm afraid is not a very communicative word anymore, but how it can make something present to us of great depth and beauty through the medium of dust, words, I guess, our dust, and it makes this beautiful thing, and it's such a huge step forward when we begin to think about our souls as a garden. What have I done to the garden? Now see, for many of us, it would take a great boost to get us up to where we could think that. But that's why it's so important to understand that Jesus not only said of himself, I am the light of the world. You're it. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Now that is a part of what goes into his creation of you. When you were born, it's as if God was leading a great orchestra and now he said, it's time for you to come in. And you were put in a unique time and place and no one else is going to be there but you. God will be with you. But if there's going to be light in that place, you're it. You're it. And you are suited for it. And if you're a friend of Jesus, you'd better get ready to shine because you really are going to shine. Matthew 13 tells us in the words of Jesus, then shall the righteous shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So get ready to shine. You might as well start now. And uh, our life, as we come into this world, is actually training for reigning. And that's, that's what we're assigned. That's what you get in Genesis 1:26. Let us make human beings in our likeness. Now, what was the likeness? Well, it tells you in the next words. 
let them have dominion. Now, if you don't like the word dominion, try responsibility. It's just as good. Now, when you read the list, you may be a little shocked because the first thing you get to have dominion over in Genesis 1.26 is fish. And then you work your way up to creeping things. (laughs) Now, by the time you get to Psalm 8, you've graduated to sheep. That's a definite advance over fish. Of course, there are all kinds of fish, but domestication has set in, and things are improving. And um, you might write that for now. This is the passage which says, What is man that thou art mindful him, and the son of man that you visit him? Uh, David, the psalmist, was impressed that God would actually come around and talk to him. And he's saying, there must be something big going on here. You know? There must be something. What is man? What is man? There's a building in Harvard University that has that over the front. What is man? And a group of Christians witnessing were asking people that passed by, who said that? And Almost no one knew. A couple of women came by, and they said, who said that? They said, I don't know, but it must have been a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, one guy came by who remembered enough of his distant Sunday school to identify where it came from. But see, that's, we said earlier, the big question is, who is Jesus? But see, that's tandem with who am I? Who am I? Now, that's the scariest question you may ask. Who am I? And you have to go to God to come back to you to answer that question. Now then, once you've answered the question and you've begun to understand the call of Jesus into apprenticeship to him and the transformation that comes in that, and we want to talk about that for the main part of the hour, then we are prepared to think about our lives. And in particular, where does God come in? The biggest barrier that we confront will be, well, he comes in in religious stuff. Now, for most people, that's not a big part of their time. A big part of their time is actually what we would call their job, which pronounced in other ways is Job, something to think about. Because that's the way many people experience their job is Job. But now, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, if we're going to learn the presence of the kingdom, our greatest opportunity, indeed our necessity, is that it show up at what we do, at our work. 
and the dignifying of work in the kingdom of God is one of the things that is most central to understanding what Jesus is about in this world and what God was about in making a world like this and letting it hang around without being exploded over and over. You know, We live in a cosmic shooting gallery, in case you hadn't noticed. Uh, and it's a, it's a miracle in itself that human beings have been able to survive on this planet and uh, as long as they have, and I think it's because God has a special thing going on there. But uh, this planet is very big in God's purposes, and you are very big in God's purposes. And so now, what you spend your time doing, whether it is in some, port of, uh, some form of work that we might call religious and, uh, or not, we want to recognize that there is no such thing as a secular world. See, I am on what proudly calls itself a secular campus, and I like to help people think about that and ask questions like, is reality secular? Have we seen a demonstration from any of our leading intellects that reality is secular? Isn't it a little hasty <laughs> to announce a secular university? If it turns out the universe is not secular, wouldn't that be a rather large mistake? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so a part of what we can do when we come to understand the kingdom of God and our place in it here and now is begin to live in a world that is not secular. The idea that the public is secular is at best hugely question begging. Right? So just the announcing of it is perhaps not enough to deal with the issues. If you announce that there is no gravity, gravity just stays right there. That's the way reality is. It doesn't care what you say about it. And so it's very important that we look at ourselves and our work and to see that in the kingdom of God. And that will mean that we will hope for different things, we will attempt different things. You could almost say, certainly I say of myself, that at my age, if I'm not attempting something that's impossible, I missed out on a turn. The Marines in the United States have some kind of saying, like, uh, we do the difficult immediately, the impossible takes a little longer. Right? And we should be thinking in terms that only God can accomplish what we're trying to do. That's the Bible Society. And we do that because we are seeing our work as God's place. This is God's place. I live there with him but he's the one in charge. 
and he is the one we count on. And then we come to know his presence more and more as we go along. Ebenezer, you know what that word means? Ebenezer? If you don't know that, that's a good one to add. It's a biblical term, Ebenezer. Hitherto hath the Lord led us. Old hymn. Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I am come. And I trust by thy good mercies safely to arrive at home. See, that's a really good way of thinking about what we're doing. And in every place, however it might humble, it might appear from the viewpoint of human beings, we have to remember that their, their vision is upside down. That's what Jesus is doing with the Beatitudes. He's making it right side up. So that, that line of his about the first shall be last and the last shall be first, which it shows up so often in the Gospels, is fundamental to the message of the Gospel. It's a reference to the inversion that comes between God's order and the human order. Now, uh, I'm not for sure if I've dealt with the issue you raised, but... That's what I, I feel like I need to say before I go on, uh, is that when, it, when, you, when we raise the issue of discipleship, the place of discipleship is fundamentally uh, our work. Why? Because, number one, that fits in with our divine calling and appointment in creation. Number two, very simply, that's where we spend most of our time. And to sort of say, now that's what I do, and then God is somewhere else, is to remove ourselves from the area of discipleship for the time that we are at work. So basically, disciple is learning how to be the kind of person that does what Jesus said. Now then... We have to understand that the disciple is also learning how to do the things appointed by their place in life. They're learning how to do that in the kingdom of God. And subordinate to that is learning how to work in the power of God. Because you can't do that other stuff without the power of God. You can't even do the things he said except in the power of God. And then, of course, when you come to your work, you have all kinds of things that nothing is said about because, you know, they didn't have the automobiles and so on to talk about in those days. Now, if you're going to write a psalm, you're going to have, you, don't, you don't want to start with sheep because probably you haven't seen a sheep today or maybe even a fish. So how would you, what would you put on the list in psalm 8? You have put what under your dominion? God has put that under your... What is under your dominion? See, that's, that's the question you ask when you are trying to think out living in the kingdom of God. Of course, you want to think in terms of the things that are good for human beings and the things that they strive for because every work is a process of creating value. 
So what is the value you're creating? How does it fit into God's purposes for his kingdom? And we don't want to be grandiose uh, in human terms. We want to take the simplest, the most humble of things that we might do that create value and make sure that that is where we center our discipleship. And then depending on what our particular place is in life, we move on to other things. Larger things, if you wish, but we have to be careful with that word larger because sometimes it really refers to a human order and not to a divine order. Now, I have got to figure out when I'm supposed to stop talking. And uh, I've lost my four o'clock. Good. I'd better move fast. Talk fast. Okay. Because now you will see from your outline that I want to deal with this issue of spiritual formation as a field of knowledge. This is really important for those of us who teach and lead uh, with reference to discipleship, uh, preaching, pastoring, uh, whatever we might do in relationship to that issue of spiritual formation. Because we want to understand that this is not magic, it's not ritual, it's meaningful behavior for an end. Okay. So, let's first let's say this. Formation, spiritual formation in Christ is what happens to you in the status of discipleship. Discipleship is a status that you enter into, and we'll try to make that very clear as we go along here in a moment. But spiritual formation is the process that happens to you in the status of discipleship. Now, you become a disciple of Jesus by deciding the most important thing in this world is for you to learn to live in the kingdom of God as he would live your life if he were you. You say, that's, that's how you become a disciple. You, normally, people don't drift into it. Uh, there may be some kind of decision. Uh, it may be a ragged decision. It may not be have everything just right. You don't have to have everything just right because God looks at your heart and he says, what is the most important thing for this person? And if the answer is, again, you don't have to have the words just right. God looks at our intention. If the answer is living my life as Jesus would live my life if he were I. That's the most important thing. Simpler version is being with him, learning to be like him. Discipleship is always a matter of being with someone and taking on their knowledge, their characters, and uh, that's a process of a little child that is in lower school learning basic mathematics. They are with a teacher, learning to be like that teacher with respect to basic mathematics. That's discipleship. Now you may say, but would Jesus lead my life? Could Jesus do that? I'm a woman. Yeah, he could do that. 
uh, and you give any of the classifications you may want. <coughs> could Jesus do that? Yeah, he could lead that kind of life. If there's something wrong with it, he'd straighten it out. You know, as he went along, he would learn. That's the basic idea. See, it's very important to talk about that because many people think, like, I, I have fun going to Christian colleges and talking to faculty about this and trying to get them to imagine that Jesus could actually teach a course in Economics 101. And you can just see the disbelief spreading over their face. Oh, sure, he could do a very good job of that. Uh, probably better than anyone else. How would you do it if you were doing it like he would do it? Now, this gets back to this issue of the impact of secularization. What does secularization mean in the context of our uh, elite professions, shall we say? What does it mean? It means that you can be the best person in the field and not have anything to do with God. Now, do you think if Jesus was in charge of the field of economics, we would be in the mess we are in now, you think? See, people, I, I teach in a university that's pretty good, but everyone in the United States wants to be like Harvard. You know, here it's Oxford or Cambridge or something. And I like to ask people, who do you think is responsible for how life is conducted in this country? It's the people at Harvard. They're the ones. Well, of course, and all the people who want to be like them. But now just think about it. What is taught under secularization? What is taught is a world that runs without God. And what that means is you can be the best qualified person in any field and have no knowledge of God. And maybe even the contrary assumption that if you have knowledge of God, you're not going to be the best person in any field. That's more of that learned contempt that we talked about. I, I hope that that's a concept that I've imparted to you and that you can recognize and learn to use it. Learned contempt. We express it in terms, sometimes in terms of don't bother me with the facts, you know. Uh, I'm already, my mind's already made up. Uh, so uh, it's very important to understand now that when Jesus brings us into the world and when he comes to us in redemption and in creation, he has a very high calling for us. And that is our whole life and that a life as a disciple of Jesus Christ is one that is not just going to go along with what everyone thinks they know. Now, of course, in the area of... Now, we use, you use the word spiritual formation. You don't need that word. Character formation. Uh, we're talking about people becoming the kind of people they become. And when you talk about spiritual formation, the first thing you want to say is everyone gets one. Ain't nobody... Excuse my English. Ain't nobody that doesn't get a spiritual formation. Everyone has had one. 
What we're actually talking about as Christians is spiritual transformation. How to dig ourselves out of the hole we've already dug ourselves into. Spiritual formation is something you cannot avoid. And that's very sobering, because among other things, it means I've had one. I've had one. And my behavior comes out of that. And if my behavior is deplorable, then I have two choices. Try to somehow get a hold of the behavior and control it. That's the Pharisee's way. It's also the addict's way and the way of many other people who are just trying to control behavior. Let me say loudly and clearly, spiritual formation is not in the business of behavior modification. Behavior modification is a side effect. Now, often the behavior is so harmful that we have got to do something about it. So, in a short run, it may be that we want to modify behavior, like you might pull a child's hand away from a hot stove. But you don't want to have to spend the rest of your life pulling their hands away from a hot stove. You want to internalize that in them so that they won't have that problem. And you won't have to deal with it. Right? But you see, the world forms us in such a way that we are always... I say we, I'm just speaking generally. I'm sure it's not true for, uh, for most of us here, perhaps. But ordinary human beings are constantly putting their hand toward the stove. So now if we want to change that, like, for example, one of the ter- terrible things in the United States is the percentage of people that are in prison. If you want to change that, you have to do something other than try to control behavior. You have to touch the roots of behavior in the components of personality. And that is what Jesus, that is what his message, that's what the Holy Spirit, that's what the Bible is about. You change the internal structure of the person. And the most important thing you have to go to, because this is where the trouble comes from, is the human heart. And Jesus talks about that in Mark 7, if you remember, where people are worried about putting the wrong stuff in your mouth, and he says, don't worry about that. The problem is not what you put in, but what comes out, right? And then he lists all the things, and we know them all too well, and they come out of the heart. Now, I think it will be useful, if you will, at least for a time, think of the heart as the will. Your will is your capacity to originate things. You have the capacity to originate things. That's what's uh, imposed upon you in creativity. What you create is uh, a separate issue and has to be dealt with because you can create a big mess. That's a part of what goes into having a free will. And a will that is not oriented towards God will certainly create a big mess. But you have to start with the heart or the will. You can't stay there now, but that's where you have to start. The primary function of the human will is to depend upon God. That's the primary function, to depend upon God. 
Now, once uh, the processes are set in motion in human personality, then the will moves out into the body, the mind, the soul, the social setting. All of that becomes enmeshed. But what we want to understand is spiritual formation is not just a matter of your will. It starts there, but it doesn't go anywhere unless it begins to touch first the mind. The mind is the entree of the light that enables the will to choose something different. That's why it's important to say God so loved the world. Oh, I didn't know that. God so loved the world. How much did he love the world? So much that he gave his precious son, his unique son. Now, uh, I don't have time to do much with that, but let me just say, John 3 is not about forgiveness. It is about life. Not about forgiveness. You can't lay forgiveness aside because as long as you're stuck with unforgiveness, life won't come. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever put their confidence in him would not have a futile and failing existence but would have the kind of life that God himself has. Now that may punch your categories a bit. Uh, everything I say, take it back to the scripture. See what it says. I don't want to say anything that cannot be drawn from a consistent and thorough interpretation of the Bible on the whole. That's crucial. It's given to us for that purpose. So take it back. God so loved the world. That's news. It comes into my mind. I never thought that before. I never heard that. Wow. God loves the world. What does love mean? Love means that he is set for what is good for the world. Doesn't mean he wants the world to do what it wants to do. That's the problem, see. Love never means that. You love something, you are set to accomplish what is good for it. Okay. You love your pet rock, you take care of it. Okay. You may say you love chocolate cake, but you don't. <laughs> right? You're not into taking care of chocolate cake. You want to eat it. That's not loving it. See. So we have to rethink love. Now, God so loved the world that he gave. He sent his only begotten son into the world. He gave his son to the extent of allowing his son to go to the cross and pour out his life blood into the world so that those who would put their confidence in him would not perish. I say, would not have a futile and failing existence, but would have the kind of life, eternal life, that God has.
That's the mind. That's why the cross is so powerful. That's why it struck the earth like a thunderbolt in the form of those who loved Jesus. And they saw him hand them a cup and say, this is my blood. And a piece of bread and say, this is my flesh which is broken for you. I'll tell you, Jesus knew what he was doing. There isn't anything that competes with what he did. No. Well, where does it go from that? It goes to your feelings. Your feelings are part of your mind. Many people don't understand that. But your mind consists of your thoughts, just as very crude, I'm sorry to be so crude, but your thoughts and your feelings. And your feelings move you towards things without necessarily considering the alternatives. Your mind is there to provide alternatives. So, for example, your feelings might move you towards survival at any cost. But your mind that knows that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son says, you know, there's an alternative to survival at any cost. That alternative is to put yourself in the hands of God and let him take care of what may come. So Jesus was so far into this that he said in John 8 that anyone who keeps my word, they will never experience death. They will never taste death. They will never see death. So what is survival in that context? What is survival? Is God's care for us. So that Paul can say in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And in the list that he gives there, of course, he includes death. But he also includes life. Because life is pretty threatening. Sometimes it would be easier to die. And so that teaching of God being with us that we started with this morning. God is our refuge and strength. God is our refuge and strength. The teaching of God as the human abode. Those who uh, are sheltered in the secret place of God shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That's where you live. Now that changes everything. But wait a minute. Your body has got different ideas. Because your will, as it has been shaped by the world in which you live, has trained your body to go like that before you even start thinking. Your feelings are embedded in your body. Jesus told his followers, you know, they're going to come and get me and you're going to desert me and run. And they said, no, no, we won't. But they did. Because when the deal came down, their legs did not consult with their brain. <laughs> they just left. See, That's what they learned in a world where there is much evil and harm to anyone who is not in the care of God. And those people cannot say, 
all things work together for good to those that are called into God's purposes and love him. See, they can't say that. The, the world is an awful place for people who are not in God's hands. An awful place. And of course, it comes out in many ways. But when Jesus comes, he says, why worry about it? Why worry about whether you're going to have anything to eat or drink or what you're going to wear or what? And he says, after these things, the Gentiles, now the Gentiles are the people who don't know God. After these things, the Gentiles seek. But don't worry about it, he says. God will take care of you. Now you see, that's, that's where you learn to be interactive with the kingdom of God. It's by trusting that. You may recall that when Jesus sent his disciples out the first time to minister the kingdom of God, he told them not to take their credit cards with them. Right? Remember that? Don't take any bag. Well, your bag now is your credit card. Why did he do that? Later he took it back for reasons I can't go into today. But he, the first time out, he wanted people to be eating what they were selling. What were they selling? The presence of the kingdom. So they were going to live on it. And that's what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, where he talks about, well, don't, don't uh, worry about these things. Don't, uh, and then Paul picks up that thing you recall in Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. If you don't have anything to be thankful for, it's kind of hard to pray. Prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, just let your requests be made known unto God. People, I'm amazed at people who don't know what to pray for. Pray for whatever you want. God will take care of it. He's not going to give you something bad when you think you're asking for something good any more than you would a child. So that's kingdom dependence. Now, the main thing I have to say to you in this last time together, uh, where I'm talking at you and you just have to put up with it, um, <laughs> Uh, the main thing I want to say to you is simply all spiritual disciplines are designed to bring the elements of our personality, which I have put in the little circle diagram in the handout, uh, into harmony with a will that is surrendered to God. And in that circle diagram, I'm afraid you can't read it very well, but you have an arrow coming in from the left. That's the word of God under the administration of the Spirit. And that comes in, and the will that responds to that light goes back in faith and dependence upon God. And once that, new, that connection is reestablished, then from the inside, the process of transformation goes forward. And so you have these wonderfully revealing things. I mean, the centrality of the mind after the will. Remember what Paul says in Romans 12 about uh, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the renewing of your mind is 
primary to further steps. Like, for example, if you want to change the social context, you have to have a renewal of the mind which goes back and forth. All of the problems in the social context come from wrong thoughts, wrong feelings, unsubordinated to God. So you make sure about your thoughts. That's one you take scripture into you. I, I encourage taking large chunks of it in and not just verses and you memorize it. It becomes a part of your body. And then it's really in a position to accomplish something great. All of the spiritual disciplines are bodily behaviors because the human being comes to live in their body, their feelings, the impulses of their body in the social context govern what they do. And if they don't have a renewed mind, one that understands how life works in the kingdom of God, they will not be able to appropriate God's power and his activity in their lives. If they have a renewed mind, then they have a place to go when they are thinking, and their action will not outrun their <coughs> thinking. Their action will not outrun their thinking. That's crucial, because for most people, they've already acted before they thought. That was the case with the guys who ran. They didn't stand around thinking about it. When Peter denied Christ, he said, I won't, but he did, because that's what was in his jaws, not what was in his mind. And the social context of that action, with all of the thoughts and fears and all of that that went into it, took over what he was going to do, contrary to his intentions. That's the understanding we need. And with reference both to doing what is right and not doing what is wrong, we have to learn how action develops and stop it before it takes hold. That requires a spirit that is settled into the kingdom of God with their body, their social relations, their mind, feeling, and the depths of their soul. That's what spiritual formation is. The outcome of spiritual formation is a renewal of the insides and forming it in the shape of the insides of Jesus Christ. You wash the inside of the cup. The outside will take care of itself. You make the tree good, and the fruit will take care of itself. And that's what we need to now put in the category of knowledge. As people who are being responsible before Christ in the world, and we need to get spiritual formation out of the category of lightning strikes and occasional inspirations. And just say, well, if you would really like to learn to do the things that Jesus said, you can do that. You name the hardest thing you think Jesus said to do, I can tell you how you can do it. But not by willpower. A process of transformation of the thoughts and feelings of the bodily dispositions and the social relations that lead to that behavior. You want to love your enemies? I can tell you how to do that. You want to defeat pornography? I can tell you how to do that. Now, I'm, I'm 
putting that in a provocative way so you remember what I said. <laughs> right. so you, you go and you think, well, who does that guy think he is? Okay, but you'll remember what I said because that's what made you think, perhaps, who's that guy think he is? Teaching people the character of Christ, leading, that is not a secret thing. That's been done over and over through the ages. If it hadn't been done, there would not be a Christian church now. So we want to put that now just solidly in the category of knowledge. That doesn't exclude grace. That's a part of the knowledge. It doesn't exclude the Holy Spirit. That's a part of what you know. You're living in a relationship. But the knowledge is essential so that we get out of the category of thinking, well, so-and-so is a Christian. What else would you know just knowing that? Not much you'd want to wager anything important on if you only knew that they were a Christian. I ask the same thing of people around my university. If people knew that you were a graduate of the University of Southern California, what else would they know that you could do? Very little. Maybe <laughs> sit still for long periods of time. <laughs> so now I want to leave that in that form, the challenge of knowledge to spiritual formation. And we're going to have the worship team come now and lead us in a time of closing worship. And uh, uh, we're going to have a, a prayer team available for anyone who wishes, who feels, I really want prayer for something uh, that is important for me and we'll, be, we'll have some over here and some over here. And I don't want you to feel any obligation to come. We will just enjoy the presence of the Lord no matter what happens. But if you feel you have a need that you would like prayer for, then please just come up to one side or the other and receive ministry. And beyond that, we'll just have a worship session and uh, conclude the meeting at the end of that.